It's time for the Smart Money Questions Podcast with Matt Hausman. This is the show that provides you with a sound financial education and helps you avoid financial pitfalls. Make sure you are asking the right questions by listening to the Smart Money Questions Podcast. It's another edition of the Smart Money Questions Podcast. Walter Storholt here with Matt Hausman, the founder of Old Security Group with offices in Newark, Delaware, Westchester, PA, but serving clients all across the country. Remote meetings happening all the time with Matt and clients. You can send your questions to info at smartmoneyquestions.com or find us online at smartmoneyquestions.com. Dot com, And it is going to be one of those editions of the podcast where we get the name from, where we answer your smart money questions on the mailbag. Matt, I know you're always psyched up for these. Always. <laughs> we love those good smart questions. Absolutely. And this is officially our last show of 2018 that we are recording. So it's kind of a good way to end the year and to then kind of launch into the new year with smart money questions. Now, typically we'll have three or four. We actually have two to end the year here, but they're good meaty questions that I think will provide some good discussion for us, Matt. So the first one's going to come to us from Alan and the second one from good old Phil. Alan is writing into us from South Carolina, down in my neck of the woods, sort of. Alan says, I'm hesitant to pay off my house because I don't have many other tax deductions at this point. But I have $100,000 in the bank, and I only owe $25,000 on the house. So it really is tempting for me to just pay it off. What are your thoughts on this? Well, let's analyze what he's talking about. I've got a hundred grand in the bank, and I've got a debt of $25,000. I'm assuming, Alan, you're speaking about you have a first mortgage with that $25,000 balance and not a home equity line of credit. I'll just pose this question to you, Walter. Okay. How much do you think he's earning with that money that is at the bank? I mean, less than a percent? Well, I mean, some of the savings accounts right now, that actually where we have the money we have in savings is earning 2%. Really? Oh, okay. So we've gone back yeah. up these days, right? Yeah, so it's not, it's not bad. Okay. But here's the thing. I still got to pay tax on that money. So how much am I really walking away with, right? Now you're less than 1%, right? Now I'm less than 1%. And then factor in inflation, I'm probably negative, right? Oof. On the 25000 if that's the only balance, I'm probably so far into paying that. I've probably been in that loan for a long time. And if we look at how loans are structured, most of the interest is front-loaded. So I'm at the point now, and if we go to part of his question, I don't have many other tax deductions, is am I actually getting a deduction for the current balance I have because how much interest is really there or is the majority of my payment, 80, 90, 95% of it actually going just to pay principal back. So there isn't a lot of interest that can be deductible. So Alan, my suggestion would be yank that $25,000 out of the bank and go pay that mortgage off. But here's what I am going to tell you to do. Then what I would do is I would get that mortgage paid off, assuming it's a first mortgage, and I would recommend going and at least establishing a home equity line of credit on the house. So that is essentially a line of credit where your house is the collateral. I didn't say that you had to use it. I just said that you want it there, and now you can go access that 25000 that used to be in the savings account, but now it's attached to your house. So that's the direction that I would tell you to go and quite frankly, why I would tell you to go ahead and pay it off and then have that equity that now you've built up 
accessible through that home equity line of credit. Interesting. I'm kind of blown away that it's become such a more complicated question to answer, you know, than just kind of just this seems like simple equation, right? 100,000 in the bank, 025, yes or no. But you kind of introduce a lot of other things to think about. Well, and the other thing to think about is his comment is, and so many people think about this, is I don't have many other tax deductions. And especially with where the tax code is today, for me to be able to really recognize my Schedule A itemized deductions, so that would be my real estate taxes, my state income taxes, my mortgage interest, is if I'm married filing joint and under 65 like Maggie and I, that means my Schedule A has to be over $24,000 before I can even take advantage of it because that's the standard. In other words, I'm already given that amount. I can't take more than that unless it's warranted on my Schedule A. But the other thing with regards to the tax deduction and a mortgage is recognize that everything that's on your Schedule A is a marginal deduction. And what in the world do I mean by that? Well, think about it in the mortgage. Let's just say my mortgage is with Bank of America, B of A, and I'm paying them a dollar in interest and I actually get to write it off on my Schedule A and recognize it because my deductions are larger than the standard. And let's just say I'm in the 25% tax bracket. Not that there is one anymore, but or let's say that's my effective tax rate, 25%. That means that the federal government is giving me a quarter back. So in some cases, wouldn't it be better just to pay Uncle Sam the quarter and you keep the 75 cents instead of giving it to B of A? Sounds like it. Right? Yeah. And so many times I think we get caught up because it's kind of the language that everyone wants to talk about, right? You know, my, my deductions and that kind of stuff. But we really have to analyze how is the deduction really helping us? In this case, it's affecting our cash flow. I got a mortgage payment, right? So if I don't have that carrying cost anymore, now I still have a mortgage, but I can tell you this, if I had the ability to pay it off right now, I'd pay it off. And I would pay that quarter to Uncle Sam to keep the 75 cents to myself. Does it make sense? It does, yeah. So, a little so it's bit. just it's analyzing that whole question, yeah. and being able to hopefully just let people see something in a different light. You know, let's look at it from a different lens or have a little bit of a paradigm shift, especially when it comes to the deductions. I remember getting a call from a buddy of mine, Rich, owns the tax office down in Delaware, and he called me. He said, "I've been doing taxes forever, and this is the first time." This has ever happened. And he was sitting with a client and they were going over the taxes and he was at that part of the Schedule A where he was talking about charitable contributions. And guess what this person's response was? Are you going to guess? I was like, you got to keep that one in. That's for sure. I was like, oh no, is this a rhetorical question or not? <laughs> <laughs> so his response was, I did give to charity. I gave to my church and a couple other organizations. But it wouldn't be charity if I'm only doing it to get a deduction. Ah, so I'm not mm -hmm. putting it on my Schedule A. Never Ooh, heard of that before. Wow, interesting. Okay. You know? And even in that case, giving to charity, I mean, we really want to give to the charities of our choice, but even in that case, it's a marginal deduction. So if I'm giving in our piggy bank campaign for this year is Meals on Wheels. And by the way, I want to thank our clients. We're going to send an email out. We're actually going there Monday to give them. Our clients raised almost $1,000 in change. 
So we want to thank them for that. And of course, we're matching that. So we'll be giving them a check on Monday awesome. for $2,000. And I'm going to ask them how many meals that's going to be able to provide or help with the admin staff. But the idea is if I do that, that $1,000, if I'm in that 25% bracket, it's shaving my taxes by a quarter. So the mortgage is exactly the same way. So many times I think we need to be aware of exactly what the deduction is. It's still money that's going out. And so just to have a mortgage, to have a deduction, first of all, we're where the tax code is. We really need to look at it. Are we even able to recognize it and actually see it? Or is the standard already there? And then why are we wanting to have that additional financial commitment? Yeah. It's kind of like the people that say, uh, I don't want to sell the stock because I'm going to make money and owe the government taxes on that. I don't want to pay those taxes. And it's like, yeah, yeah but, but you made money. Like, Correct. <laughs> you're not losing yeah, it. But, but, same thing so, here, though. But, it's the same conversation, right? Of, oh, I don't want to lose the tax deduction. Well, okay, that's good if that was in a bubble or in a vacuum, but you have to look at the total financial picture. Correct. Okay. Exactly. And let's actually look at your stock thing. So one of the things to look at, especially I'm assuming what you're talking about is going to be an after-tax type of investment account. So you're looking at paying tax on just the gains is being able to do what's called tax loss harvesting. And so that is, you might have one stock. Yeah, it's really up there. And if you sell it, you're going to recognize potentially a taxable event. But if you have a couple others that are down, why not sell them all to offset the gain and reduce your overall taxation cost. Then you can go ahead and sell that stock. Mm-hmm. You follow what I mean? My brain has never wrapped around that concept, though. Because, like, why wouldn't I just sell the one to make the money and then hold on to the ones that are down and wait for them to come back up? So that's a great point. I'm, I'm committing some financial sins here in that line of thinking, aren't I? No, no, no. I, I don't think so. Your point is well thought of. But the idea is being able to recognize the gain. I mean, you know, if something is so far down and we're hoping for it, this is also why we don't get involved in, you know, just picking individual stocks and we True. we invest across a broad index. But the idea is if it's Sears it, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> from our previous podcast conversation, it's the idea of now being able to uh, I didn't say that you're going to completely offset the gain. But the idea is is to be able to now use the gain and the tax code to your advantage. And is, that's how you would do that. Is the big issue there, like if I sell this stock and make a good amount of money, it could potentially push me into some sort of higher bracket, and that's why we want to offset it? Is that the goal? Well, if you've held it longer than a year, you're going to be in the, the long-term capital gain tax oh, rate. True. And so you're not going to see a larger tax bracket currently until you get over 600000 in taxable income. So if you're in that situation, more power to you. Yeah. Right. Or maybe real estate, you know. So to give you an example, I have a client that just came on board and when we were going over their tax returns and I I should, they came on board a year ago and going over their tax returns, I recognized that they had a carryover loss from, I think it was 2010 or 11 of like $60,000. Well, Unless they recognize a gain to offset that, they can only deduct $3,000 a year. Hmm. So what do we do? We recognized all of the gain to up to that number of the carryover loss, and we reinvested it, and they paid no tax. Wow. 
again, so we're talking, you know, the conversation initially was about deductions, but really looking and being able to analyze the tax code to our benefit or to the client's benefit in minimizing tax and maximizing what goes in your pocket. Let me give you another example. And I get this question a lot. Like if we're a client, you know, what's everything that you do for us? And many of you have heard me talk and Walter, I know you've heard me. The idea is we want to be kind of the quarterback right. in someone's whole financial life. And taxes are a huge part of that. So I had a gentleman in my office yesterday, very, very smart, intellectual guy, engineer. He comes in, he's got like 19 spreadsheets. <laughs> For those of you that- My kind of guy, I that, like that. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? And looking at different things and, and what he was describing that he was looking to do just over the course of the next two years, I was trying to explain to him that doesn't make a lot of sense because of this, this, and this this year. And the other things that will happen next year, why don't you look to do only this this year and this next year? And he was still having a hard time wrapping around. So I just I brought up my software real quick. We plugged the numbers in. I said, this is what I'm talking about. Lotus over here, and we looked at the brackets. So you were mentioning the brackets earlier. We looked at this, and then on his suggestion, we wrote the numbers down, the tax cost, and then we did next year, projection for next year. And then we did mine. And I said, if you'll just do this and you'll use, we're right at the end of the year, we're going to use the changing tax year. So we have till 1231 for 18, then we start 19. So if you'll use that to your advantage, he can still accomplish the same thing because we're spreading it over two tax years. But here's the, and he had to see the numbers. And I understand that we all want to look at that. The difference in doing it his way versus my way, my way was a savings of $47,000 in tax. Ooh, say it again. 47000 Wow. <laughs> I mean, he was talking big numbers. We can all do a little something a, with that, right? Well, I'm sorry? We can all do a little something with that, right? Absolutely. I kind of joke with him. I, look, I said, listen, this is why you hire me, right? And it's the idea that we're doing this every day in understanding the tax code and where the opportunities lie whether it's deductions, whether it's tax loss harvesting. In this case, it's using the 1231-11 date to our advantage because we can separate it over two tax years, still accomplishing the same thing. We're just delaying it a little bit. And so $47,000 is a big number. And so that's where um, I know we're kind of going off. We're, we were talking about paying off a house with money out of the savings, but it's being able to look at all of that so that we could flip it around. Well, what if I was going to I want to. I got a hundred thousand dollars in an IRA. I want to pay the mortgage off of twenty five grand. That changes the story, or changes the question dramatically. Why? Because of taxes. So it's being able to kind of holistically look at not only our money, where is it, and how are we going to spend it? What do we want to use it for? And then that is always going to involve Uncle Sam. Yeah. I love it. Kind of went off on a tangent there. Sorry. I, well, you know, I get us in trouble. I ask these little tiny follow-up questions, and you just latch onto it, and then there you go. I send you off. I think that's Lord knows I can talk, right? That's that's why that's why we like the uh, like talking to you on the podcast because we get kind of some great analysis and some things we didn't previously think we needed to be thinking about, and that's important. Alan, great question. Thank you for sending that one in. I'll remind you if you're new to the podcast. This is how you send in questions. You can do it in multiple ways. You can email Matt, info at smartmoneyquestions.com. That's info at smartmoneyquestions.com. Or you can find us online, smartmoneyquestions.com, and click on the various resources there on the website for you. 
blog, check out the videos, certainly episodes of the podcast, and you can get in touch with the team that way as well. And you can always call Matt directly at 610-719-3003, 610-719-3003. Ask your smart money questions. If you don't want to feature your question on the show, you don't have to. You can call Matt or email Matt and just talk to him one-on-one as well. It doesn't have to be a public conversation, but it is always fun when we get some questions that are kind of you know, meant to be just asked on the program. And that's what we have here from Phil in Ohio with our next question. Matt, to wrap us up here in 2018, no matter what I do, I can't seem to get my wife engaged in our financial planning. Is that okay, or do I need to figure out a way to get her involved? You got to figure out a way whether it's reversed. You know, I have some clients where the wife has always taken care of the money and the husbands just don't want to deal with it. But it's so important that in this case, your wife has at least an understanding and knows where the money is, what type of money it is, IRA, you know, after tax, whether there's Roth involved, all of that. It's so important because the reality is at some point in time, one of you is going to be the surviving spouse, you know, unless God willing, you know, takes you both at the same time. That's reality. And in many cases, it is the man going first. And so I'm going to use a personal example on why I think this is so important. My grandfather, my dad's dad, and my dad's mom, my grandmother, great people. And it was this situation where my grandfather took care of everything financial. My grandma, didn't really know much. I mean, she knew that she had a couple credit cards. They didn't have a debit card back then, and and she had a checking account, but didn't really know the other things that were involved in. My grandfather passed away first, and unfortunately, my grandmother, in one of our podcasts, we were talking about financial scams, just because of she didn't have the knowledge that she needed. She didn't understand certain things. She made some very, very poor financial decisions. And so it's so important that like, for instance, I might have someone come in and meet with me the first time and it might be the husband or it might be the wife. And I always will say, listen, if we're going to go forward in working together, the spouse is going to need to be here. And I'll hear, oh my goodness, I can't get her to do anything in this case. She just won't come to this stuff. I said, listen, it is extremely important that they become involved and invested time-wise and understanding what it is that we're proposing or that you as the husband are looking to do so they have knowledge of exactly what's happening because you don't want to have the surviving spouse not have any idea. They're already going to be dealing with very emotional issues when the spouse passes away. And so we don't want to compound that with the idea of not knowing or understanding their current financial situation. I think we spoke about that a couple podcasts ago where I mentioned and we have had some clients that have spouse die prematurely or I've had somebody, I, I think I mentioned it, that was in the office and they left a prospective client and the very next or that night he passed away. And my recommendation is, listen, sit on everything for 90 to 120 to 180 days, get past the emotional issue. But really, and you actually brought up a great question there, what if things need to be planned out? Well, if the spouse, the surviving spouse has been involved in the planning process, they would kind of understand where everything is, at least conceptually. 
And so they can go through the emotional issues that we'll have in losing a spouse and then be able to make other decisions when they're ready to, but at least they have an understanding on where their money is, how they're going to still pay the bills, what the income sources are, those type of things. So, you know, I, I just think it's so important that both the husband and the wife are involved in that process. And it's different for everybody, I feel like, to, you know, answer these questions sometimes or find the right solution. I know that, you know, my wife, on a personal note here, isn't as into the numbers. You know, it's just not her bag. She's been so busy with grad school and, you know, just working while in grad school and, you know, with the house move that we've had recently. And But even over the, you know, first couple of years of our marriage, it's just not been something she's been all that interested in. And I've been very fortunate. She's a very frugal person. So it's just been very nice. So there hasn't been a reason yet to really be like, Hey, we got to get this under control because she's, I'm the spender. So I've got to have that question with myself, but that's also why she needs to know. She needs to know that I'm spending and and challenge me so that five years from now, she's not going to go, Hey, I've been eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for (laughs) five years. You've been going out to lunch every day. Look at the difference in the bills here. What's going on? You know, at least we know that that's happening currently. It's not going to be a surprise on anybody. So we have found a good way for us to stay in touch. She also just gets incredibly bored with it. She hates having, I love the like sit down conversation. Like I can't wait when we have kids and I'm sure you've gone through this phase already, Matt, I'm sure where it's, you know, all right, we need to have a talk, son. Let's sit down. And, you know, I've already got my chair. This is, I'm such a goober. I've already got my dad chair picked out here in, in, in the new house. I told Connie when we moved in, this is where we'll discipline the kids here. <laughs> I said, this is where we'll have our heavy family conversations. This is my dad chair right here. <laughs> so, But I grew up with that. I grew up with my parents sitting at the dinner table and communicating about their finances openly, talking about it, doing budgeting together, paying the bills and going through that. So I kind of grew up with that mentality and that image where she didn't. She didn't grow up in the family that had that dynamic. It was much more private. It happened, you know, away from the kids, behind closed doors. You never saw that communication going on and happening. So we also come from different backgrounds in that regard. So we have had to find something that works for our styles. And, you know, I, I won't, you know, continue to go down the road of, you know, what that looks like, but just know that it looks like something different for everybody. And so for us, it's, you know, the Reader's Digest version is it's simple. I send a monthly email that is way more detailed than anybody else would ever want to read about when it comes to financial stuff. But the nice thing is she can then read it at a time that's really good for her, where she's not distracted by studying and all that kind of stuff. And then she can ask me questions about what she reads on all the updates and all the things we need to be thinking about. Here's a status on these accounts and this is what needs to happen over here and we're watching out for this. And she kind of gets that full status report each month. And that kind of works for our routine. And then certainly we'll have, you know, when they need to be deeper conversations, we'll talk about them. But that's a good way we can kind of stay in touch over time. So, I don't know, I thought that might be a helpful thing to share. And you're right. You know, everyone's going to have their different style. But the idea of a completely hands-off, I don't want to touch it, you know, just let me go out to lunch every day or whatever that is, I really think it needs to be, even what you guys are doing, having that dialogue being able to communicate with exactly what's happening, I just believe is so, so important. Yeah. All right, Matt, any final takeaways as we close the book on 2018 and look forward to uh, 2019 now? I can't believe 18's done. Yeah, it's over <laughs> that fast. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. 
Well, hopefully everybody's enjoyed the holidays and is ready to turn the page to another new year. Last year of the decade, Matt. That's right. Here, I'll, I'll say something real okay. quick. I'm going to say go Gators. In this post, in two days, they're going to be at the Peach Bowl playing Michigan, so go Gators. <laughs> I like Florida's chances here because Michigan didn't look very good down the stretch of the season there, did they, with that big loss to Ohio State? Well, definitely not to Ohio State, that's for yeah. sure. But, you know, the last two times we've played them, we haven't fared too well, you yeah. know? Yeah. So we're uh, we're hoping that changes December 29th at noon. Check it out. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know my Tar Heels. We're staying home this year with our two-win record, so... <laughs> At least you've got something to root for. That's exciting for you. So, yeah. Go Gators. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you have uh, had great holidays. And we'll talk to you on the next edition of the podcast. Once more between now and then, if you want to submit your own Smart Money questions to the show or you want to talk to Matt directly one-on-one, you can go to smartmoneyquestions.com or email him at info at smartmoneyquestions.com. And always, you can pick up the phone and call Matt as well, 610 719 3003. That's 610-719-3003. This is the Smart Money Questions Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.